All right, let's do this. We are going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been in this series as Quip for about three months now. We began it uh, back in, would have been February, March, somewhere in there, picking up off the series that we left off on. And the thing is about understanding this and the importance of it, it talks about here as the tools for a gospel-centered life. But you know what? When we say those terms, we often just kind of, it's become cliché. It's just words that we use. We never actually think about what they mean. And we run into a problem when we address Scripture. Is we read through parts and assume that we know what it's talking about. And when you assume that you know what it's talking about, you will glance over and miss a number of truths that are hidden in there. And there's a Hebrew term uh, that is used when they, when they study Scripture, the, the Jewish people, is that it, it, it's a thing where they get in there and there's something that jumps off a page. And it's something that seems like it's abstract, but yet when they dig into it deeper, they find deeper truths. And this series is what we're talking about, is being equipped for the world that we are in. The things that are around us, the things that we have to deal with. And ultimately, when it breaks down to it, it's understanding who we are when it is in relationship to God. Because we have a complete misunderstanding of that today. In today's culture, especially in America, an American culture has crept into other parts of the world. It amazed me of when I was in the Philippines a couple of years ago, how much of the American church problems had crept into the Filipino church. You wouldn't think so, but you know why? TV and internet. And they look to America as some sort of, like, let's be like them because we're the greatest. Y'all, we are screwed up. I mean, big time. We've lost our heart. We're, we're like the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. It's like, you have lost your first love. What is our first love? Ultimately, it's got to be a love for God. But what does that even mean? You see, we've gotten away from the truth of Scripture, understanding what it is. And so the, uh, the, the term or the verse that we've been using is 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16. It says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine reproof correction, instruction, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This tells us something. This verse alone, if you read nothing else and we talked about nothing else today, should unlock something for you. The things that we know about this is that this is scripture. What makes it scripture? Not that you and I have called it such, but that God has called it such. What we think about what this says and what it truly says do not match up. Your opinion on the Bible is irrelevant if it's not grounded in truth. So you can have thoughts about God, but how do you base the reality of those thoughts? It's no different than anything else. I keep using the analogy. If you choose to not believe in gravity, you still deal with the effects of it. You can't deny it because it is a verifiable truth. We see it happen. You want to watch? Here we go. Catch that. See that? That was impressive. You'd almost think he was athletic or something. What did we just prove? Gravity. And that he can catch. I don't want him to throw it back because I don't want to prove the antithesis there. But the bottom line is this, is that the reality of God is found inside of these scriptures. If you eliminate these scriptures, then you eliminate any basis of which we judge things upon. I know I use the word judge. We're not supposed to do that, right? That's sarcasm if you're not picking up on it. You see, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means the writers of the Old and New Testament combined were inspired by God to lay out something. We see in other parts of Scripture where it talks about it was written for our benefit, but it wasn't written to us. 
That means that as we read the truths that are in it, that we glean information from it because it's not a letter written to you. When you eliminate yourself from it and you go back into the original context and the culture of it, what it was written in, you will begin to understand it in a way and it will transform your belief about God. Because we have a whole bunch of beliefs with no foundation. We have convictions in our lives with no foundation. We believe our children as they're growing up, if they're morally good, then they must be spiritually right. But those two things don't necessarily equate. We dealt with that in the last church that I was on staff at, is that we had a big homeschool culture with a bunch of really well-behaved kids. And the reason they were really well-behaved is because they didn't know how to talk. I mean, they sat around, they didn't do anything, they were all excited because there was electricity and all that kind of stuff going on. It's a joke, stay with me here, tough crowd. But they were so well-behaved because they were raised in that, but yet when it came to the things of God, they really didn't know much. They knew information about God, but that relationship with Him was gone. It wasn't there. But the parents were convinced of the alternative of that. Oh, yeah, he's so good. Yeah, that's great. Good people go to hell. Saved people don't. There's a big difference. You've got to understand that. And so when we look at this, we see why Scripture was given to us. Ultimately, that we can be equipped. To be equipped means we are supplied with everything that we need for a particular purpose. As you and I are ambassadors for Christ, when we are born again, I didn't say churchgoers, I said born again. We immediately are sent into the mission field. Do you realize that there is no qualification to go and preach the gospel? That you do not have to graduate with a a degree from a seminary? I know that's shocking to hear, but it's talking to all of us. That we have to be equipped and prepared to do the work of the ministry. And one of the things that we've addressed and have been dealing with is the idea of the armor of God. How necessary that is and why it was given. And so let's look at Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. It says, finally, my brother, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Again, you stop there, you're doing all right. Quit trying to do everything on your own. We are trusting in God's ability to bring you through. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So because of that, therefore... You take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Now stop there for a minute. Everything you needed at this point is right here. Because of everything we see, we take up the whole armor. We put it on. That's a Greek word, angel. We put on the entirety of the armor, all of it. If you have to put it on, it means you weren't born with it. It also implies you might take it off every once in a while. We have to constantly be in preparation for the attacks of the enemy. Now here we go, verse 14. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. I know I talk fast, I know it's in a mouthful, let's look at this armor this is obviously an artist's rendition but we have talked about the breastplate of righteousness we have talked about this loin belt the belt of truth we have talked about this shield we have talked about the feet and the greaves that are on them these were all crucial to a roman soldier paul they believe was sitting there in a roman prison looking at these soldiers and seeing them as such as he was describing this we also see in parts of the old testament the same nomenclature used here as as, is in ephesians now let's talk about what we have here we started with the belt of truth everything 
in God must be grounded in truth, not your opinion. Do you realize this? And I don't know if you do or not. Your opinion about an, a certain item could be wrong. It's not true because you believe it. I know that's crazy to hear. All right? It's, uh, since the kids are out, I'll say this. It's like Santa, right? Most kids grew up believing in this fat guy who wears a red suit and brings them gifts. My kids call him dad because I really kind of fit the, the thing there, you know. But they believe in it. And just because they wholeheartedly believe in it does not suddenly make him real. It might make him real to him, but that doesn't change the fact that he doesn't exist, at least in that sense. There was a real St. Nicholas, and there's a whole story behind that. You see everything in this armor connected together, and it all connected into this belt. You eliminate the belt, the armor is now useless because you have weak points. It's not locked together. Just like with God, everything is grounded in truth. Absolute, objective truth. You have to get that. Because you got subjective truth, which means, well, it's true for you, but not for me. It's your opinion, yada, yada, yada. That's a bunch of nonsense, philosophical nonsense. The reality is, is the truth of God is found in Scripture, and what He says goes. Just the bottom line. We don't have to like every part about it. You know how much easier it is in today's culture to not be a Christian? To not have these stances that we take? Because it's God's opinion, His Word. He created everything. He gets to make the rules. It would be so much easier to just go the way of the world be a lot less fighting but that doesn't eliminate the truth of scripture everything is grounded in there the breastplate of righteousness was this ornate thing made of multiple pieces of metal as if the more that they moved the more the sheen would come on it and it was interlocking pieces locking into the belt it was beautiful everybody knew it you recognize you see the sun glistening off of it you had the greaves that protected the shins and protected the feet starting up above the knees all the way down Multiple pieces of metal, each one uh, crafted for the individual that was there. I was giving Yoli a hard time. Yoli's been playing my guitar when I don't have to lead worship, as you know, and I know that's what we want, but we'll get back to normal here shortly. Just bear with me. But I went to put on that guitar this morning that Yoli's been playing, and I made a comment. You know what the comment was? Either Yoli needs to gain some weight or Chris needs to lose some because that baby was up here. The guitar setup for Yoli does not work for me. I have to adjust it. I have to make it work. The armor had to be customized to each individual because they're different sizes and shapes and stuff. So we've got that part. And then most importantly, what we've talked about so far is this shield. It says above all. That doesn't mean it's the most important. That means you put that shield above everything. It was made out of metal and several layers of leather. It was beautiful. And they would soak it in water because when those darts would come, it would extinguish them. As I said, there was three types of arrows that were used. There was ones that they lit on fire. You could see those coming. They had just regular arrows, which, hey, no big deal. Right? And then, of course, these ones that looked like a regular arrow, but it had these chemicals that when they hit, it would combust. They weren't ready for it. But when they would hit those arrows that were rubbed with oil every single day and soaked in water, it would extinguish them. What I'm telling you is don't just spiritualize this stuff. This is all grounded in actual events that took place. That is why Paul is using the words that he's using. These are all important to understand. Every part of it, the spikes on the bottom of the, the shoes, every part of it is there. But now we come, as I said last week, to two parts that are the most important. Because the Lord revealed something to me about four or five years ago about what we're going to talk about today and next week. About the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. 
In verse 17, it says, and take the helmet of salvation. That's just weird, but it's important. Stay with me in here. Now, let's look at this helmet, what this thing looked like. These are, again, they're, uh, they find these things in archaeological digs all the time. But you can see here, it's, it's fairly ornate. I don't know if that's an actor. I don't know what's wrong with my thingy here. Maybe the batteries are dying. There we go. But you can see here, it comes down over the jawline. It's got this thing in the back. Okay. Now, you notice this one doesn't have a plume. They, most of the time, had these big plumes. Now, would that stand out as you were walking down the road? Absolutely. They were made of red uh, horsehair feathers, just kind of depended. When they were marching in parades, they would have them, and they would run all the way down to about their waistline. It had to do with weaponry, and it was very ornate. It had to do with uh, victories that they had and, and battle. They had artwork carved into it. I mean, it was very ornate. They would carve, um, like, landscapes and farm scenery and all these different things that were going on. They would, uh, sometimes they'd have them look like the head of an elephant. Don't know why, they just did. So they had all of these things that were going on. made of bronze, and it had those things that would protect the cheeks, and it was extremely heavy, as you can imagine, okay? It was extremely thick, it was heavy, and so they would put this spongy material in it to kind of take the load off the head a little bit, but it was strong. Nothing could pierce this thing. It was almost impenetrable. The reason they wore it is because they dealt with these things that were called battle axes. Now, these are things that they actually fought with. We see them in movies and video games, but here's two different kinds that they use. This one here on the left, my left, your left too, as I'm facing this, is one that you see most often. But this one here on the right had the same thing. They would have two sides to it because they could swing one way and come back the other. Now, the reason they had the thing on the back is because oftentimes they'd get them off balance or try to and come in behind. They're trying to behead them is what they're trying to do. So the small spike was to try to penetrate the helmet and put a hole in it because once it was broken, then they could easily get into it a lot or get into it a lot easier. So, yeah, it's gross. It's bloody. This was not like these are all cute in the movies and stuff like that. And we're like, oh, yeah, look at this. No, this was intense. They had hand-to-hand -hand combat. They're carrying all of this stuff. Sometimes they'd have spears. They'd have all sorts of different things that were going on for weapons, and we'll talk about that more later. But here's the thing. It was important because they were protecting themselves from the attack of the enemy. It's kind of like, do you guys know why they call uh, Marines leathernecks? Because back in the 1800s or whenever the Marines were all put together, they were often battling Muslims. And what do Muslims do? They behead people. So they would take a leather strap and wrap it around their neck so that they can't be beheaded. That's why they call them leathernecks. Little piece of information, it's free nugget, I'm not going to charge you extra for it. I mean, there, there's always been these reasons that they had these things, the same thing there. So there is a purpose of this. Now, why here, when we look at Scripture, does Paul's using under inspiration of the Holy Spirit compare a piece of weaponry like this to salvation, this helmet of salvation? Well, here's the thing. Salvation in and of itself is the most elaborate gift from God. When someone is truly walking in it, it sticks out. There is something different about a truly born-again believer in the way that they carry themselves, the way they talk, the way they act, all of that. So much so, as we talked about a guy named Diocletian in the, in the late 300s, he was a ruler over, uh, over Rome, that 
He tried to destroy everything about Christianity that he could. He burned every copy of Scripture he could find. He jailed or killed all the pastors, so to speak, any believers, and they would put them into the Colosseum of the Games. Do you know why? Because they would not partake of the culture. It was a very gross culture back then. It was just completely, uh, there were no rules. You just The bathhouses, you didn't just bathe in the bathhouses if you're picking up what I'm putting down here. The Colosseum was all about killing people. It was part of the games. They would go in there and they send several people in there and they would uh, duel to the death, basically. And the Christians would not partake of that. And he hated it so much that he was concerned it was going to ruin the culture. And so because of that, he tried to wipe them out. He failed, but he tried. You see, there is something unique about a Christian. It's kind of like the plume. It stood out. You could see it coming from a long ways away. When somebody is in a situation with a born-again believer that has this helmet of salvation on, they are not moved by any circumstances. They stand on what they know. Paul is telling us that when we are confident in our salvation, this powerful reality is, is that we are noticeable. The Greek word for helmet here is, I'm going to attempt to pronounce these, okay? You guys know I'm, I'm not well-versed in Greek here. It's perikophilia. And if you think that's wrong, then you pronounce it, okay? But it's compounded of two different words. It means around, and then, which is the para part, and then the kephalia, or however you say that, means the head. It's this armor that fits tightly around the head. Why did the soldier need the helmet? Because of those battle axes. As I was saying, there was one purpose of those. It was to chop off their heads. It's kind of like kids when they wear helmets when they ride their bike. What is the point? To protect their brain. Now, I know what you're thinking. You've talked to some of these kids. What are they really trying to protect? Right? I'll tell you the parenting win of a lifetime. My mother, back when uh, I was a child, I was young, I had been under 10, went to a garage sale and bought a 1920s football helmet. Okay, no mask, the leather on stand. You remember them, you used to wear them, right? That's a joke. <laughs> Stan may not be here next Sunday after this week. But she, I have a brother. There's two of us. She bought one helmet. She's like, this is your bike helmet now. Okay. We had to share it. So do we ride in shifts? What do we do? Of course not. We went riding. So I wore it first. Riding around, doing our thing. My brother's with me. We're cruising. He's throwing a fit. He wants his turn. He's two years younger than me. I said, fine, whatever. I handed it to him. We're riding up the alley, heading home. And guess what? I wiped out. Guess what I hurt? My head. Split it open. Had to have stitches. Parenting win. Cheapskate. She's like, well, I never thought you'd actually wrecked. Why'd you buy the helmet? I mean, anyway, that's a sidebar thing. It's the deal that we've got to understand here is this helmet of salvation, as Paul is using it, was crucial, and it was for a reason. The battlefield, as I have said multiple times, is always in your mind. The devil comes to attack your mind. If he can get you thinking wrong, he can get you acting. Your thought life is crucial because your mind is the control center of your life. We act upon the things that we deeply believe. We vote on the things that we deeply believe. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That's what they said. They put out there that all men are created equal. And they're endowed with certain unalienable rights by their creator. You see, they were so moved by what they believed that they separated themselves from a nation. Honestly, they probably had things pretty good. It was a lot simpler. But they had to go to battle because they didn't believe it. 
They knew it was wrong what they were being forced to do. We have to do the same thing. If the enemy can seize control of your thought life, then he will begin to extend influence in every other area of your life. How you think, you will go. It's just the reality of it. This is why we have this helmet of salvation. It's why it's so important. Paul's choice of words here tells us that we've got to learn about our salvation and find out what it includes. That we, and how do we do that? Well, we spend time studying the Bible. But I don't mean just reading it. And I don't mean just extracting verses. I mean studying it. Not what does it mean to you. What did it mean to the guy that wrote it? What did it mean to the guy that he wrote it to? That's crucial. What does the Bible have to say about salvation? What does the Bible have to say about healing? What does the Bible have to say about deliverance? What does the Bible say about our redemption and the beneficial consequences of that redemption? Because when you have the full assurance of what God says on any of those matters, when the enemy attacks, it is completely futile. It will not work because we stand on the Word. Now, let's break this down a little bit. What we see in Ephesians 6, verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Now, I know what you're thinking. We use that term wiles all the time, don't we? We just run around. These are words that we use. But here's the thing that we need to understand. God equips us with everything that we need to stand against the enemy. But whose job is it to put on the armor? It's ours. That means if you're attacked and you're failing, ultimately, whose fault is it? It is yours, not God's. Don't blame him. Now, we as body of believers come behind and help pick up and lift up and all these other things. But God has provided it. What we choose to do with it is up to us. Same with salvation. If we preach the gospel to somebody and they reject the message, whose problem is that? Not ours. It's theirs. What was our job? Not to convince them to share the truth. They can do with it what they want. So, let's look at this word here. We've talked about it before, but let's talk about it again because I want you to see it. The term wiles comes from the Greek word methodos. It is where we get our word method in English. It's broken down out of two words, meta and odos. It means with a road. Now, that sounds weird, but here's where it gets interesting. We also get the word odometer from this word. It literally means with a road. It is saying that the devil works against a believer. He does it with a road. In other words, one path constantly. There is no creativity. There is no variety. He uses only one road, one avenue of attack. He always attacks believers the same way. Where do you suppose that word or that road goes? Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It says, But if anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some extent not to be too severe, this punishment which was inflicted by the majority is sufficient for such a man, so that on the contrary you ought rather to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Therefore I urge you to reaffirm your love to him, for to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ, lest, lest Satan should take advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now, I want you to think, look at this. This is Paul speaking to the church in Corinthians, or the, Corinth, the, the Corinthian people. He is telling them something here. Let's go back for a moment, because I want you to see this. If anyone has caused a grief, that means caused a problem. You ever had somebody cause a problem in your life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you're married, you have to say yes. He has not grieved me. But all of you to some extent. So this isn't against Paul. 
So it's not to be too severe. We don't know what happened. Commentators think that maybe there was a moral failure. There was some incest that was going on. There are some that believe they're just causing problems in the body of believers there, the church. But this punishment was inflicted by the majority sufficient for such a man. So that on the contrary, you ought rather to forgive and comfort him. So they have brought punishment. Now it is time to lift him up. We've dealt with the issue, now we lift him up. Lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. In other words, the grief of whatever they have done to these people overtake them and they just kind of, they disappear. Build them back up. Therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put to you, put you, you a test whether you are obedient in all things. Go to the next part. Now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. Now, look at this. Lest Satan should take advantage of who? Us. The ones who were sinned against. Not the one who sinned. The ones that were sinned against. Because we are not ignorant of his devices. Now think about what is just said here. He just told you that if you are harboring this bitterness towards this individual because you were offended or whatever the case may be. The enemy is coming against you, not them. Why? Because the battlefield's in the mind. If he can get you to start hating your brother because of what they did, whatever that case may be, whether it's reality or not reality, sometimes perception is reality, you're offended by something, the enemy will continue to play on that and get you off kilter because that's his device i need a new one of these things now what does that word device mean well the word device comes from the greek word nomada it's from the root word now so it means it's a word for the mind it's a scheming of the mind he's saying that we're not ignorant of the mind games that the devil tries to pull on us you guys see this Where's the road headed? It's going right to your mind. Where's the battlefield? It is in your mind. How do we know that? Because he can't force you to do anything, but he can convince you to act wrongly. Look at Eve. Did God really say, don't eat of that fruit? Oh, he didn't mean you'd actually die. He just knew that once you did it, you'd be just like him. Boy, that sounds like good stuff, doesn't it? He came to Jesus with the same thing, quoting two passages out of Psalm. Turn those stones to bread. Throw yourself down. Worship me, I'll give you the kingdom. He always responded with Scripture. You may be thinking, well, yeah, that's Jesus. I mean, he can do anything, right? That's how we respond. He took the falsehood that was brought against him and used Scripture to turn it around. This is important. I want you guys to keep that in the back of your mind. Now, let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5. For I consider that I am not all at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge. But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted? Because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge. I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from the burdensome, uh, being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. So what's he saying here? He's like, listen, I never took a dime from y'all. I came here free of charge. Other people made me come in here, like sent me in here, funded this thing. Why? Verse 11, because I do not love you, 
God knows. But what I do, I will also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. What are they trying to do? They're trying to make themselves apostles, just like Paul, just like Peter, just like these other guys. They're trying to elevate their platform as a voice of authority, even though they're not. Watch what it says. Verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, so because of this, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, here's the thing. He is telling us that these people are trying to build this platform for themselves portraying themselves as people of God. They are getting, in in today's culture, they're going into the churches, they're preaching, they're using the Bible. They must be right. They're on TV. They've got to have the truth. I saw them on Facebook. It's got to be true. They're doing all of these things, but he said they are false apostles. They are deceitful workers, and they're transforming themselves just like Satan transformed himself into an angel of light. So because of that, it's no great thing that his ministers, who's his? Satan. Wait a minute. You mean that there are people out there preaching in churches that are ministers of Satan? Apparently so. It was happening then. It's happening now. That can't be. That's just too out there. That's not how it works. God would stop that. No, not how it works. What are we to do? We are to use our mind to recognize the truth. You cannot recognize a falsehood unless you know what the truth is. Bank tellers tell me all the time, I talk about this because I find it fascinating. You know, we've had some uh, uh, counterfeit bills go through. This area in Nebraska City gets hit all the time. I don't know why, but they get hit all the time. How do they recognize it? They don't train on feeling false bills. They train on knowing what a real one feels like. They can recognize it the second they touch it because it feels different. Don't ask me. I can't do it. They can. So there's something about this that we know what the Word says so much so that when something comes against it, we immediately recognize it and deal with it. These people are being deceived. The word deception from the Greek, again, is dolios. It doesn't mean to deceive accidentally or haphazardly like I didn't mean to deceive you. Maybe I've taught something wrong. Maybe, you know, it's, we're not talking about that kind of thing. It's used throughout the New Testament in verses that are connected with the devil's deceptive abilities. It literally means to bait someone, as in setting bait in front of a fish. These are not people that are just maybe off a little bit. These are people that are intentionally deceiving people. Does that happen? Absolutely. As sad as it is, it happens all the time. The enemy takes a road into a person's mind, and if he can beat down their resistance, he'll begin to wage warfare with a device in that person's mind. He is setting bait in front of them with lies and accusations, hoping that the person will bite in that. That's where offense comes in. This is what we call a stronghold. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, you notice we're hanging out in the same book here. It says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for doing what? Pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and everything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. What do we do? We bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, how do we do that? We can't bring something into obedience to what Christ has said if we don't know what Christ has said. You cannot just come to church and think, I am going to give you everything that you need, all the knowledge and everything like that. Because here's two, there's two parts to this. One, you are accountable unto yourself. Number two, I might be wrong. If I teach something that's contrary to Scripture, what should you do? 
be like the Bereans. Study the Scriptures daily to see if those things which were said are true. It doesn't matter who says it. It matters what was said. So here we see all of these things are doing what? The stronghold, the arguments, and the high things that are exalting itself against what? The knowledge of God, knowing who He is and what He does. Your opinions are irrelevant if it's not grounded in truth. So what is a stronghold? This comes from the Greek word akaroma. It's one of the oldest words in the New Testament and originally used to describe a fortress. By the New Testament times, they're also used to depict prisons. They were pulling down fortresses, pulling down prisons. I mean, that's how you need to think about this. A stronghold, like a fortress, it's a fortified place. They had citadels, they had castles. I mean, all of these things that we think of, forts, whatever. These are, have exceptionally thick, they're impregnable walls, and they were to keep outsiders from getting in. They would build these walls extremely high, and there was one purpose. Keep outsiders outside. You don't get to come inside. Later, when the stronghold turned, it started to be translated prisons. Well, what do prisons do? They keep people inside. Same kind of thing, but they have two different purposes. They keep insiders from getting out. The fact that the word stronghold can be translated both fortress and prison means something important here. First, it means that when a person has a mental or an emotional, uh, emotional stronghold in their life, they have walls that are around and they're extremely thick, and it seems like others can't break through to them. They're keeping the outsiders out, but, and they become isolated in their mind. They set themselves apart, which will eventually lead to isolation from all other people together. I mean, they will just separate themselves. You see it all the time. People kind of get away from the habit of being with the body of Christ. They begin to get into their own thought life. They come up with some wacky ideas. Why? Because they're no longer accountable together and growing together. These don't happen overnight. Sometimes it's weeks, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years. But it will begin to happen. It's a very long time of allowing the enemy's lies to build this fortress around your mind that you cannot accept what the truth of Scripture is, even about yourself. The second part is the same walls that keep others from getting in keep this person from getting out they're trapped in their thought life their thought life is, is filled with lies and all of these beliefs about themselves or the world around them you ever met somebody who's paranoid they seem to think that everybody's against them they seem to think that everything is happening to them if you see two people stand on the other side of the room talking they think they're talking about them i mean i had a person one time years ago i've been counseling this person they didn't live here in the state of Missouri. They actually lived over in Iowa quite a ways away, but they would come in every week. We'd sit down. We'd counsel. And she was paranoid. And I was trying to help her through this as best I could. I was trying to help her through it. And the day after she left, she got a mental health thing from over in Maryville mailed to her. It was a mailer. Like, come in and, you know, get checked out for your mental problems or something. Whatever it said. I don't even know. And was absolutely convinced that I had called the hospital to mail that to her so she help six weeks after the fact she asked me about it and I'm like are you kidding me like you ought to know me well enough that I'm a pretty straight shooter and if I'm going to do that I'm going to let you know ahead of time and I'm not going to call them to mail you something I'm going to drag you over there if I thought that was what would help you but I mean they were just so paranoid that they think the worst in every situation they are trapped in their thought life they have become both mentally and emotionally in bondage to these thoughts of what the enemy is putting in there. There are two types, rational and irrational. Okay, We've got both. Paul refers to these rational strongholds when he's casting down imaginations. They're talking about arguments in 2 Corinthians 10.5. If you see this here, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting uh, down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
These imaginations or these, um, this, these arguments here comes from the Greek word logismos, logic, logical thinking is what it means. Rational strongholds are exactly what they sound like. God's telling you to do something, but you can't because whatever. God tells you to go share the gospel, but you can't because I don't know the Bible well enough. What do they think of me? Like, what if they ask me a question I can't answer? Yada, 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 so on and so forth. God tells us to go lay hands on the sick. Oh, but what if they don't get healed? Boy, that's going to be embarrassing. I made a promise I couldn't keep. It's not your promise to keep. It is your job to go and preach. Your job to go and lay hands. That is the thing. People who call themselves thinkers are often prone to fall to these strongholds because they can't get out of their own way. They're inclined to allow their minds to dominate and it will conquer their faith. I'm not saying we cash out our brains just to become followers of God at all. I believe in logic and philosophy. I use it every day. I believe that we should think, and I know the Scripture will line up with that. But your mind will fight against the Holy Spirit's control in your life every time. So we've got rational ones, and we've got irrational strongholds. And we've all experienced this at one time or the other. We've always had some fear of worry of something that's going to take place. If we have to go and have a conversation with somebody, and it's not a pleasant conversation... We're always playing this through our mind, like, okay, how's this going to go? How are they going to respond? And most of the time, it never goes the way that we think. We always think the worst. The sky is always falling. I've had to fire employees, okay? I've had employees who work for me. I've had to let them go. I always, I mean, I'm playing this because I hate that conversation. Sometimes there's just no choice. And I'm like, man, this is going to go terrible. I, I drag it out, whatever. Most of the time, they knew it was coming because it was well-deserved. The best thing for me, back when I was in the insurance business, I had an office assistant that worked there, and I had to let her go. And she had a bunch of health issues and things like that, but I had to let her go because she's just never at work. And so I finally sat down with her, and I, I said, listen, you need to go get you taken care of and all of this stuff. I'll help you in any way you can. And I let her go. And then I sold her life insurance right after that. It was awesome. It was a great day for me. So not a lot of people can say that, but I can't. You see, the irrational strongholds have to do with fears and worries, and most of them are completely uh, unrealistic. You know, what if we die early? What if we, we are afraid of some disease? We're going to get it. Oh, my gosh. We just went through this, right? The paranoia that was going on about this whole corona thing, all being turned out to be a complete farce. It was nothing like they said it was going to be, but people were panicked. Churches shut down, locking the doors. Everybody's hiding at home. Oh, my goodness. We can't do the work in the ministry because there's a sickness going around. I mean, any of this stuff abnormal fear of rejection. I won't go and do this because what if people reject me? I won't share the gospel because what if people reject me? I've got people that won't pray in public because what if they don't think I pray good enough? Who cares? You see, your pride will keep you from doing things of God. A lot of times, simply by maturing, a person will outgrow these. But sometimes the simple use of, uh, of a rational thought will throw out an irrational one on its own. Just think through the process. What's this look like? It doesn't mean that these aren't real and they don't have power over someone, but it's easier to overcome when you begin to think biblically. This is why Paul says that every thought is to be taken captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, I want you to look at this, verse 4 again. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Now, there's something strikingly missing here. He is dealing with a spiritual warfare aspect. He's dealing with these things that are going on here. What do you notice is mentioning that he, does not, or he doesn't mention that's missing here? He doesn't mention the devil. Because the devil's not your problem. Your thought life 
is your problem. You see, he goes around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Your thought life is the road of which he gets in, and he makes a lot of noise. What do you do with that? Are you armored up? This term, bringing every thought into captivity, comes from the Greek word, forgive me, malatizo. Okay? It is actually an extremely brutal word, but it's to take one captive with a spear. It's like you're pointing it at the back. How would we use that today? Someone's standing behind you with a gun to your head. Do what I tell you to. That's exactly what this is saying. This is what Paul's getting here. These thoughts don't take taken captive easily, but they can be done. We must be brutal with ourselves. We've got to look in the mirror and say, who's running the show here? We don't do that. Our culture doesn't allow for that. It's always somebody else's fault. We always blame somebody else. We never take accountability to ourselves. Let me tell you a story about my life. Not a proud moment for me, but it's what happened. I owned a business. It was, just, was doing really, really well. I went on staff at a church, moved three hours away. Had, I had employees that were running it. Everything was going well. And I kept having this feeling that I needed to check in on it, but I had people that I trusted. And um, I did call them up, and, but you know, they'd be like, oh, yeah, things are going pretty well, yada, yada, yada. Okay, fine. So I'm trying to follow God into the direction that he had led me to. And I, long story short, I come to find out that this employee had been stealing from me, both of money and equipment and all sorts of stuff. He had gone around and signed a new contract with all of our contracts saying that he had bought me out. He's lying to people and all of that. I had to shut the thing down. cost me thousands of dollars because he was charging up stuff on my accounts. Who's responsible for that? Me. So I had to pay it. I had to get on the phone with all these people and say, listen, I will get this right. Give me some time. And everybody was cool, and we made it right. But he was stealing from me. Can you believe that? I took care of him. When I bought that business out, he came to work for me. I gave him a raise. He immediately had a small heart issue. Had to miss three weeks of work. I paid him the entire time because I didn't want him worrying about that. I said, you take care of your family. You take care of your health. Don't worry about this. We'll take care of it. I gave him a truck to drive around. I mean, I took care of this guy, and he stole from me. Whose fault was it? It was mine. It was my fault. Who's ultimately responsible? Me. Where's the buck stop? Stops with me. Should have you stolen? Absolutely not. But who's supposed to be watching it? Who's managing the ship? It wasn't him. It was me. So I had to look in the mirror and say, you know what, Chris? You screwed up. And I didn't like it. And when I call people telling them I owe you thousands of dollars that I don't have to pay you, but I will make it right, and I did. I just swallow my pride in that because ultimately, who's responsible? It is always me. It's no different than any other aspect of our life. I screwed up. I had to make it right. When it comes to the things of God, who is responsible for you? You are. It's not the devil's fault that you have problems. It's your fault. How do we deal with it? Everything that you need to be equipped to deal with it has been given to you. Are you putting it on? Are you using the tools? He never mentions the devil. He only mentions your thought life. We take every thought captive. He's talking about mind game. These devices that are being used. Look at it again. Verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Obedience. Here we go again. Hupako. Two words. Hupo. Echo. Under acoustics. It's the picture of forcing someone into a subordinate position and then making them listen to you. Husbands, we know this one, don't we? Because all they got to do is look at you. 
you're not paying attention to what's being said, you'll know pretty quick, right? I mean, here's the thing. You are going to listen to me. You're going to do what I tell you to do. We ought to do this with our diets, too. You ain't going to eat that seventh donut. You don't need it. Six is enough. Like, there's a reason Golden Corral is still profitable. Because we like our food. We don't control ourselves. We do what we want. You see, we address the stronghold, but what about this term oppression? Okay? We hear you got possession and oppression. What do we think of here is possession? We think Linda Blair. Head spinning around, vomit coming out, green vomit shooting, all this stuff. Like, I guess it's some crazy stuff. And it talks about that. Okay? Not the head spinning around. I mean, not the movie. Okay, bear with me. Let me explain that a little deeper. Okay? <laughs> but, but oppression happens all the time. You see, when things happen, we, we get to begin to think wrong. Oppression sets in. But here's the thing. Look at Acts, what Acts 10.38 says. It says, How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, this word oppression, again, do I have this up on the screen? Oh, thank God. You pronounce that one. I'm not even going to bother. But it's broken up into these two words. Something that is dominating or manipulating in its power, dunamis, that is explosive. They come together, and it's portraying an image of a wicked tyrant or an evil king who forcibly imposes his will on his subject. When a person is oppressed, his mind and emotions are being manipulated and dominated by an outside source. And when a stronghold in the mind remains unchallenged, it will eventually lead into a serious case of oppression. And once oppression sets in, hopelessness is the end result. It's a matter of time. This is where the helmet of salvation comes in because it protects your mind. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does this mean? We don't talk about girding up your loins, right? It's not words that we use, so don't think you know what it means if you don't know what it means. Like, look it up. When you guys read some of this old English and old language and all of that, don't just assume something. But girding up your loins, they wore, they kind of wore like robe-looking things, skirt-looking things. What they would do is they would pull them up and tie them off so that they could move swiftly. I've never attempted to run in a dress. Let me explain a little further. I've never worn a dress, Okay. <laughs> So I'll just make sure that's let's just clear the air. So, <laughs> but I can't imagine running with all that on your leg. I can barely imagine running as it is. I don't do that either. Okay? But it's talking about here, gird up the loins of your mind. Tie up the loose ends so that you can be swift. You see, the helmet of salvation gives you God-given attributes and benefits. We have a deliverance from sin. We're no longer slaves to sin. Nobody forces you into sin. You make that decision. Salvation from hell. We're, we're saved by grace through God's power. We have this divine protection, this preservation, this healing and wholeness and complete soundness of mind should you choose to accept it. God's given us everything we need to stand against the enemy. Everything. But what about this? concept of having a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power, love, and a sound mind. The spirit of fear is not referring to a spirit like you think some thing floating around out there, and it's like, oh, that's fear, that's the spirit of fear, yada, yada. It's more of an attitude or belief. 
But the sound mind aspect comes from the Greek word sophroneo. It comes from sozo, which is saved or delivered. You think about salvation, that's the word sozo. And phroneo means intelligent thinking. To have a saved mind or a delivered mind. This is a picture of a mind that has been set free and is thinking correctly. When your mind is guarded and renewed by the word, you begin to think like you should. It is perfectly rational to trust what God says about every situation. But this doesn't happen by going to church. And this doesn't happen by being a born-again believer. This happens from someone who is diligent about studying and understand what God has said. You can be saved for years and have an unrenewed mind and still be in bondage. And most of the time we don't even recognize it. Or we don't want out. We don't want out bad enough to put the discipline in. Romans 8, for the, to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Why do we not choose life? Why do we not choose peace? Because it takes effort. It takes discipline. Your salvation is done by God. The renewing of your mind is done by you. It's hearing the word and accepting what you hear as truth. You can go to church every Sunday, pick any church in America you want to go to, and they can read the Bible and preach Scripture and all of that stuff. But if what you hear is not mixed with faith and trust in what God has said, then it will do you no good. Titus verse 1 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but even their mind and consciousness are defiled. These verses are about someone who is an unbeliever, yet they're fit the mindset of many believers today. They've never been disciplined enough to renew their mind. When it comes down to the things of God, all I care is what He says. When someone doesn't like something that I preach, don't take it up with me, take it up with God. Because it's Him that said it. You may not like a moral stance that goes on in the church and in Christianity today, but that's not my problem because I'm not the one that made the rules. I didn't create the world. I didn't write the Bible. He did. We stand on that. We have to begin to renew our mind. We put on this helmet because he's going to constantly attack. We see it all the time. Look at the world we're in right now. The chaos is going. It's been one thing after the other. I don't care what your opinion of the president is. Like him, don't like him. Doesn't make a lick of difference to me. What is truth? What is reality? That's what we stand on. We can spend all day arguing politics. Oh, you know, this is bad. We shouldn't do that. Think this way. These guys, these poor oppressed victims, yada, yada, yada. Here's the thing. You are a result of whatever you allow. So deal with it. Begin to look in the mirror and point back at yourself. But you can only do that through the lens of which the Word of God is and understanding what He has said about you. That we are more than a conqueror. That we are renewed by His grace, made whole, given life. All of these things. You see, this is two parts, because you've got the helmet of salvation, but then you've got the sword of the Spirit, and we know that's the word. So how do these two things come together? What do we do with these two things? Because they are interlocking, whether you realize it or not, they're crucial. Next week, I will show you that. I'm telling you, a couple years ago, probably four or five now, I've been, I mean, I've read this past, I don't know how many times. And it was like the Lord revealed something to me in that that completely changed my life. Some people call me brash and arrogant, and that may be the case. I don't know. I don't try to be. But I'm just that confident in what the Word says. So I'm not moved by the things around me because I choose not to be. I'm only going to be moved by what God says. The sword of the Spirit is so crucial to understanding this. When you guys understand the Word, it will set your life free forever.